Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. Uh, apologies for a little technical difficulty here in terms of my camera. Nevertheless, with my trusted colleague, Wesley uh, Boudelier, we're uh, proceeding. I am thrilled to have this conversation with my guests this morning. You are going to be so inspired and so empowered as a result of this conversation. I'm thrilled to introduce to you all uh, my newest best friend, David Lee Winster. Hello, David. Welcome. Hey, Ed. Good morning. Um, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you, my friend. So am I. So everybody, let me set this up. So as the Holy Spirit would choreograph my life, um, David and I had set this conversation in our calendars about a month ago. And in the meantime, I had these experiences with Chris Buckley and then Arno Michaelis having to do with some of the themes, but not all the themes. And, and David is very different from his story and what he's doing is very different from th those stories. But they all have these common themes of young lives caught up in violence, criminality, um, discrimination and prejudice. And you would think that if these lives were to continue along that, their path, they wouldn't be long lives. They just wouldn't. And then there was a 180 turn in all three of these lives and their 180 degree turn has had this amazing miraculous ripple effect on those people with whom they share a history. Not in terms of biography or identity necessarily, but in terms of the assault on young people before they have a chance to get their life headed in a resurrection-oriented, redemptive way. So I am, we have quite a story to hear. So mm -hmm. first, David, I would love, and everybody, I do want to say that we are going to get to plenty of time to uh, move from David's youth in Miami-Dade, Florida, to his very successful life as an attorney in Atlanta and the head of a nonprofit that is doing redemptive work with young people. So that's the arc of our conversation, but we have to start with his youth. So David, kind of set it up for us, please, sir. Uh, thanks, Ed. So, um... You know, this journey I've been on is unconventional to say the least. It started with my immigrant parents moving to Los Angeles County, California, because my father wanted to pursue an American dream so his children could actualize to the best version of themselves. Well, he was a blue collar laborer. My mom was a homemaker and we lived check to check. On one occasion, my father wasn't paid, so he took it to court. And in the civil realm, they don't appoint counsel. They give you an interpreter. So he went before the judge, the judge ruled in his favor. We thought we had won. Well, the company that lost appealed and brought him back to court. When we went back to court, my father didn't have funds for an attorney and they didn't give him an interpreter and he lost. And this was my first experience with the American jurisprudence system. It showed me that 
resource was the way to go with regards to producing results. My father didn't lose because he was wrong. He lost because he was foreign and he couldn't communicate. So he picks us up and he moves us back to Buenos Aires, Argentina, our safe haven. And there I learned what poverty truly is. I lived on a dirt road. Our house was made of exposed cinder blocks. We had a plastic sheet for a roof, uh, curtains for doors, but it didn't matter simply because we had a loving home. My parents taught us great principles. Uh, there was a lot of laughter. We, we spent great quality time together. And for four years, my dad saved up enough money to get us back to America and continue to pursue um, our American dream. This time, instead we go east uh, and we land in Dade County, uh, South Florida. And I was too young to realize, Ed, that, you know, we moved into a, the ghetto, if you will, a lower socioeconomic environment where uh, surviving was very difficult. And at the age of 11, um, poverty felt more consequential than it did in, Amer in, in Argentina for me. So poverty feeling consequential in America this time, I wasn't able to wrap my head around it. And uh, I made a terrible mistake. I stole a set of pegs for a bicycle that my brother and I shared to get to and from school. The bicycle had a stripped gooseneck, so we couldn't tighten it to tow each other. And uh, it was tough to get to the same place at the same time. And so I decided to steal a set of pegs because I knew I couldn't ask my parents for the money. Well, it's 1990. It's the, the height of the get tough on crime movement. And they bring me before a juvenile judge I'm adjudicated delinquent. I was placed on probation called community control. I had to do community service hours. I had to do theft deterrent programs. I had to check in with the court every single month and pay fees. And uh, this was tough because we were already struggling. The, the added expenses to my parents just exacerbated our financial woes. And it and did so all at age 11. This is all at age 11. Mm -hmm. And there's something that most people don't realize about the criminal justice system and how minorities feel when they're dealing with authority. Um, you know, you, you're, you're a little timid. You don't know what questions to ask. You just want to make sure you do whatever you can to, to um, not get in any more trouble. Well, the system didn't help me, Ed. The system called me a defendant, a juvenile, a probationer, and those labels, they molded me. They opened the door to the darkest years of my life. So... Uh, fast forward to the age of 13, I uh, witnessed a murder uh, at a movie theater with my younger brother. We witnessed someone get shot about 10 feet away from me, and it was obvious that it was a gang-affiliated situation. It was four gang members um, that were jumping one individual, and then they ended up shooting him. At that same time frame, I'm walking home from uh, middle school every Friday, uh, I would get jumped because they had this thing called Cracker Day. And Cracker Day is where black or brown kids would assault the white kids simply just to do it. And so on several occasions, I would fight back. But the more I would fight back, the more I would get beaten. And so at some point, um, I decided to join a criminal street gang. And I made friends with someone that knew I was Hispanic. So... I initiated into a Hispanic local criminal street gang uh, by getting jumped in. Getting jumped in just means that I fought the people I would be hanging out with and spending most of my time with. And uh, I did this at age 14. So at age 14, um, I became a gang member. And from 14 to about 16, Ed, I, my whole life shifted. I started focusing more on the, on the lifestyle of the gang. And um, I wasn't 
I, I wasn't uninterested in education, but what I learned about education in America is that it's failing people and it wasn't stimulating me. I am doing the same mathematics in ninth grade in America that I had already done in Argentina in fifth grade. And they called me a student at risk. But the reality was, is that their curriculum was, it was the problem was their curriculum. They, the, the books were outdated. There were pages missing. The, the instructors, the educators weren't very motivating. And so nothing was stimulating me to stay. And so at 16, uh, at the age I could drop out without any legal consequences to my parents, I did so, um, of course, against their wishes. But I did that. I dropped out and I started heavily gangbanging. I got heavy into the dope game. I was selling a lot of drugs. We opened a, a drive through marijuana dope hole where we implemented business models that are successful in corporate corporations today. So, you know, we're making some good money. Um, I'm helping my parents out. Now I know where my next meal is coming from. So I'm not regularly stressed or worrying all the time. Like most people dealing with poverty are. And uh, the problem I didn't realize is that with money at that age comes enemies. And I didn't have any financial literacy. So I'm not putting the money in a bank. Uh, I'm just purchasing cars. So at the age of 16, I'm driving a 1994 Lincoln town car. It's 1996. And um, I need gas one morning. So I pull up to the gas station. I get there. I put my music on loud because I just want you know to be intimidating and gangster. I walk into the gas station. I go to pay. And all of a sudden, the music cuts off. And I thought, that's odd, because that song that I had just put on is about six minutes long, and it cut out 30 seconds into it. So I look outside the gas station, and some rival gangster is ransacking my vehicle through the, path, the driver's side door. I get out of the gas station, and I hear an alert whistle. I look over, and I see uh, a car that I recognize as being a rival gang member's car. So I don't go up to the car. I go towards my car. And... Uh, I, when I get to my car, the other individual ran off. I see that they stole my, my Motorola StarTech phone with a leather case that had several hundreds of dollars in it and uh, my Alpine detachable face rendering my audio system useless. And, you know, in these neighborhoods, we have, have this culture that if you don't administer some level of retribution, you're going to be considered soft. And so these things will happen to you over and over and over again. Well, I call my right hand man up and I tell him, look, this happened. We got to make an example of this dude. And uh, we start looking for him and we know we find out where he lives. Exactly. We drive by. He's not there. So about 12 hours elapsed before he's finally home. And uh, during that time, I'd been drinking and smoking. And by nine o'clock at night, I'm fully incoherent at this point. I get to his house. Uh, he comes outside. He's wielding a firearm. And, uh, you know, he's threatening to shoot me and I'm telling him to put the gun down. I just want my stuff back. His sister is asking him to put the gun down from inside the house. He finally obliges. And as soon as he puts the gun down, I just I attack him. I just rush him and I start pounding this guy. And I was so enraged and trying to make an example of him that um, I everything was completely um, I, I, I didn't notice any of my surroundings. And suddenly I hear freeze, which um you can imagine that means uh, run as fast as you can. Uh, and so here we are, just every man for themselves. I, I run as quickly as I can. I, I hide in a local park and um, I climb the highest tree in this park. When I get to the, the top of the tree, uh, I'm trying to settle down. I'm sweating profusely. I could feel my heartbeat in my eardrums. And uh, all of a sudden I hear a faint barking sound, which 
I was hoping was uh, someone had forgotten their dog in the park, but the reality is I knew what that was. Those were the hounds coming for me and I could hear the, the steps and the barks coming and getting closer. So I started getting scared and um, I, I scaled the tree down. As soon as I scaled the tree down, my feet hit the ground and a loud, loud noise, like an overloaded washing machine. Um, and I look up and a huge light and a gust of wind. And then there's the ghetto bird. The ghetto bird is what we call the, the chopper in the neighborhood. So they, they deployed a, a police helicopter on me. I'm trying to run from the, the chopper. I'm running as fast as I can. I get out, I get close to the ed edge of the park and I see the fence I got to jump over. This is a fence um, I put my hand on and I throw my body over. But unfortunately for me, this is one of those fences that had a pole and the fence protruded over. So um, I pierced my hand on that fence and here I am dangling from this fence. And as I'm dangling there, all of these memories started flashing through my mind, which, and I say this with a disclaimer, I, I don't have disdain for, you know, law enforcement, but I do have disdain for corrupt law enforcement. And uh, my experience to date uh, was that uh, I would get profiled. And if I had drugs and money on me, they would tell me it was my lucky day. They would take my stuff and let me go. Um, or they would, if I didn't have anything on me, they would arrest me for whatever arrested, you know, disorderly conduct, whatever, you name it, I, I've been arrested for it. And, uh, or they would beat me up and then they would drop me off in rival gang territory, leave me for dead. Um, so this was my experience with police at the age of 16. I, I knew that this situation here was the one that they could justifiably kill me. So I ripped my hand off the fence. Um, my hand is really mangled. Um, I needed to have immediate medical attention, obviously. And, um, I thought I got away, you know, I'm, I'm in the neighborhood hiding in the shadows, but, uh, and you'll get a little kick out of this. I, I had long red dreads and a mouth full of gold teeth back then. And so I'm as pale as, as it gets, right? So I'm like a shimmering ghost. You don't have to try to identify me. If you just happen to see me, you know, it's me, right? And the next day, the bulletin boards are everywhere. I was wanted. I, so I turned myself in. I turn myself in, they take me before the juvenile judge and the prosecution stands up and says they object to the release because they believe this is gang affiliated. The victim is in a hospital. It turned out he was there for like six months and they didn't know if he was going to live. So it could have been a homicide case. And uh, so uh, the public defender says, you know, this is an argument of self-defense. They robbed Mr. Windicher and he was just trying to get his stuff back. Wrong place, wrong time. He shouldn't have been at the house. But this is not about a gang. Um, well, the prosecutor had it and he says, you know what, we're going to do direct file Mr. Winnature. And what that means is they took my case and they bound it over from juvenile court to adult court. I was transferred from the juvenile detention center to the Miami-Dade County pretrial detention center where my 16-year-old self was incarcerated with grown men charged with rape, murder, arson, seriously violent crimes. And my bond was denied and I was awaiting trial. Um, so I, I sat there in lockup and I witnessed some ungodly things. This helped me realize that incarcerating young folks with adults is inappropriate. It's a, one of the things that we have done in the criminal justice system that we have never, never should have done. Um, I've witnessed people get raped. I witnessed people get stabbed in the throat. I've, I've watched correction officers beat the crap out of people just because someone doesn't doesn't respond to their demand quick enough. And so, you know, I learned the culture 
of incarcerated life. I, uh, I get to court and uh, before court, my right hand man on the outside goes to see the state's material witness, the guy that robbed me. And they tell him, look, if you decide you want to go show up to trial and testify, make sure that you have a good breakfast because it'll be the last thing you eat. Um, so on the day of my trial, um, you know, there's no victim at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., 1 o'clock, 3 o'clock, no victims shows up. And by 5 o'clock, they didn't have a witness. So they had to dismiss my case because the state was what's on what's called terms. They had to move forward or dismiss the case. Well, they dismissed the case and um, I'm released. I go home. And um, I thought I beat the case and things were great, but, you know, the, the adage, um, the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think that my intentions were to help my family out of poverty, but I was dragging into ruin. I get home and my brother, you know, he has a gun and he's got drugs and he's got a beeper and he's saying, I, I took care of business while you were gone. And he's calling me Red, which is my nickname. And you know, I thought, oh, my God, this is all my fault. And my sisters, they get out of a car as I'm having this conversation with my brother. And it's an old ghetto Chevy with rims on it and some gangsters driving it. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is all my fault. Well, so I, um, I knew I needed to do something. Otherwise, this was going to be the result uh, of the destiny of our family. And so I started focusing on education. And I focus on education because a young woman... Um, she just took a love interest in me and she was education oriented. She was well-to-do and uh, we were having a conversation and she says to me, well, what do you want to do when, when you get older? Because uh, I told her I'm tired of this life. And she said, I told her I wanted to be a lawyer because I saw how the system treated my father um, when I was a young man and because he was poor. And then I witnessed uh, some ungodly things in the criminal justice system. I saw the racial thrust to it. You know, I'm I'm white and I get the benefit of white privilege, right? I was going to jail while my friends are going to prison. I'm going on probation while they're going to jail or prison. And I thought, you know, obviously I didn't figure a lot of this out until I got, I cognitively developed and my emotional intelligence kind of enhanced to where I understood exactly what was happening. But uh, so I tell her, I want to be a lawyer because I feel like I can do something to help the system. I, I feel like the system has got it all wrong. And she says, well, you got to stop being an idiot, you know, and you got to start focusing on education. And I, I thought this conversation isn't going to go anywhere. So I changed the subject by saying to her, well, what do you want to do when you get older? And she says to me, I want to be a police officer. And I thought, a police officer. Huh? OK, well, great. Uh, this isn't going to work. Right. And um, she stopped me and she said, uh, why don't we do this? I'll make you a deal. I'll tutor you to get your GED. I'll help you get into college. If you teach me all of the things that I can't learn in school about criminality, about gangbanging, about selling drugs, about stealing cars, about fraud, all the things that you do that I can't learn in school, you teach me so I can be a better officer one day and I'll get you into school. And I told her, you got a deal, you know? So she started tutoring me immediately. Um, I met her in November of 97 and by March 10th of 1998, I uh, sat for the GED examination at Miami Lakes Technical School, and I passed, Ed, with 155 out of 160 questions right. And to me, that changed my life because I realized that if I apply myself, I can do something with my life. And I learned that education is the cornerstone of growth. The more I read, the more I could lead, right? And so I got really into it. I started, she helped me get uh, into my CPT, which is the college placement test. And unfortunately, dropping out caused me to have to take 
two and a half years worth of provisional classes because of some foundational stuff I was lacking. But talk about dedication, right? Because my bachelor's degree took almost seven years, six and a half, six and a half plus years to get a bachelor's degree. Um, I graduated with a 3.97 GPA, top of my class. So, David, um, I want you to continue the story. But before, uh, let's just stop there. <laughs> I mean, okay. that's a bunch of amazing experiences from some of the worst to one of the most impactfully uh, life-changing. So um, before, we go to, before we go to law school, let's talk about, you, you told me that, and, and I'd also seen in a, a video about you, mm -hmm. that you had a, a number of stab wounds and, and scars, bullet wounds and scars, and arrests, right? Just kind of review right. that that enumeration, that numeration. Sure. So I mean, it's a little shocking when you hear, right? Because uh, by the age of nineteen, I had been arrested thirteen times. I've been incarcerated for eight months. I've been shot and stabbed. Um, and the interesting part about that number is, you you know, you heard I got arrested at eleven. But then the other arrest didn't really start till about 15, 16. So from 15, 16 till 19, I accumulated 12 arrests. That's two a year. And a lot of the reasons why that happened is because of, you know, obviously some of the things that you're seeing on television now um, because of technology helping us understand that not all law enforcement is ethical. Um, I experienced that. I was a victim of police abuse. I was a victim of malicious prosecutions. Um, and so from 16 to 19, I accumulated 12 arrests, 19, I had 13 total arrests. You've, you also have reflections. Uh, you've already mentioned the police, that we've, we have really good people who are police officers, and there is a culture in America of police abuse and prosecutorial abuse. Mm -hmm. Then with all of these arrests, eight months incarceration. I've also heard you, David, have a critique about race in America and how if you didn't live in the white skin that you live in and all of this had happened to you while if you were living in skin of color, that mm -hmm. your outcome might not have been what it is and uh, the cards would be stacked against you. Can you just... Talk a little bit about your reflections about that. Certainly, I'd, I along my journey, I realized that my skin color was playing a role in my ability to ascend. Um, I, I clearly experienced white privilege, right? I mean, do you know someone with my criminal record that's black or brown that has a license to practice law? No, right? And the reason is because I'm given the benefit of the doubt. I put on a suit. I, you don't see this. Um, I I articulate things, I, I can be eloquent. And so you would never guess that. And we are predisposed to look at someone that looks like me, fair skin, hair combed over in a, in a press suit and say benefit of the doubt. And I received the benefit of the doubt on multiple occasions through the criminal justice system, through the vetting process of the bar examination. I mean, I had to, the stuff I had to go through to become licensed, I had to show up in person and explain my story. Because when you look at it on paper, you have an issue, right? But then when you meet me and you start talking to me, you realize, you know what, some bad decisions, a lot of bad circumstances. And my skin color certainly played a role in my ability to get to where I'm at today.
And I just want to file this, everybody who's watching, because all of these reflections David has shared on top of his actual biography have come to play in this new nonprofit he has developed. We're, we're not there to talk about it yet, describe it yet. But I just want you to have this in your mind because I think this is another one of those stories where God is working overtime in the life of absolutely everyone to free us from the worst things we've ever done. Um, I, uh, Brian Stevenson says, everybody is better than the worst things they ever did. And I just love that. And we're having that illustration. Now, David, thank you for going there. Please now take us from, oh, oh one other clarification. This woman with whom you tutored, you had a mutual reciprocal tutoring relationship. Yes. This is a, a romantic interest of yours. Is that correct? That's correct. So what, a, what an amazing gift, you know, that here comes this person who wants to be tutored in being a good police officer, and you're mm -hmm. wanting to be tutored in an education. So it culminates in law school. Let's go, if you'll take the next chapter and take us from law school establishment of your practice to your organization called RED. Certainly. So law school was interesting because I applied to 50 schools and given my criminal record, 48 of them immediately shut me down. They basically sent me a letter saying, no, thank you. We're not interested in your tuition funds. Uh, your criminal record is too much. Two schools, Georgia State and John Marshall, uh, gave me a chance. They said, we would like to vet you further. So I flew into Atlanta. I met with both schools. It didn't work out with Georgia State University, but uh, John Marshall gave me an opportunity. And that's how Atlanta became home. This institution sort of partnered with me. They, they were concerned that because of my criminal record, I wouldn't be able to sit for the bar exam or even be able to receive an oath of attorney. And so we kind of came up with a plan to help me get to that point. And what we had to do um, was get creative. Uh, the dean of admissions back then, a guy named Michael Mears, who I have so much admiration and respect for, he referred me to an individual named Manny Aurora. Manny Aurora is a high profile attorney here in Atlanta who represents public figures, uh, athletes, et cetera. So I, I meet with this guy and uh, he hires me. We have uh, a, a great relationship today. He hires me and he puts me to work immediately. He starts, uh, he allows me to shadow him practicing law at the highest level in the state of Georgia. And for about a year, we did that. And then one day I come to work and he says, all right, you got to go now. We're going to get you to the DA's office because if the government vouches for you, you have a better chance of getting to sit for the bar and getting your oath of attorney. And so he gets me an interview at the DeKalb County District Attorney's Office. I interview with this woman and we have a wonderful rapport immediately. We're just, you know, shooting the breeze. And uh, she says, I'm going to hire you. You are, you look like Chuck Norris, so you're going to kick ass in court. And I thought she's a little sappy and funny, but, um, and she said, I just have one more question. And have you ever been in trouble? And I said, how much time do you have? And uh I mentioned to her that people back home were monitoring my situation to understand whether someone with my background could realize this opportunity. Again, white privilege, right? You see me, I'm in a suit. She just, I, I, 
she brushed it off and she hired me. Well, about a week later, I'm in a motion assisting a prosecutor and the chief investigator walks in and he says, Windature, we need you to come with us. And I get that feeling when the handcuffs go on and uh, it feels like you're letting everybody down. So they walk me back into the, the, uh, the interview area and this woman's there and she says, we have to let you go. And I thought, what are you talking about? She's like, look, you've been arrested more than some of the people we prosecute. You served serious sentences more than some of the people we, we lock up and you can't be a government agent. You can never work for the government because of your criminal record. They escort me out of the building and I don't know what to do except because um, when you're in that moment, it's hard to kind of get your, you know, your mind composed to, to respond properly. And so what I did was I called her back and I said, look, if the government purports to be a rehabilitative tool for people with a background, then let me be the poster child of that because I can carry this weight. I can do this. I'm focused. I have the discipline. I have the willpower. Just please give me a chance. And if you let me talk to the district attorney himself and he knows my story, maybe he can make an informed decision about my situation. Well, she brings me in front of the DA. And I remember Ed walking into this man's office and his name is Robert James. And I have so much respect for him. He changed my life. Uh, he stands out at his desk and he says to me, Mr. Windicher, we've been monitoring your situation the entire time. And we wanted to see how you would respond to being terminated, given your criminal history to determine whether or not you're fully rehabilitated. He sticks his hand out and he says, son, he says, son, you're the American dream. He says, you came from immigrant family. You wow. in poverty. You have gone through the criminal justice system 13 times. And here you are now trying to work in prosecution to help the community. He said, it'd be a travesty if you don't take your job back. So he offers me my job back. And then I find out that this is a faith-based individual, right? And I've been faith-based since October 16, 2001, when I was saved. And so he says to me, he says, let's pray. And we prayed. And he says, now you go and be a change agent because that's exactly what you're going to be. And he gave me autonomy over the juvenile department so I can understand which individuals needed to be truly prosecuted because they're violent and a danger to the community and which ones we needed to help so that we can effectively reintegrate. And I did that for almost two years. Um, I sat for the bar exam, passed, and I got my oath of attorney because the DA's office and Manny both vouched for me. And so, you know, I'm thinking, this is fantastic. I'm, I'm living exactly what I wanted to do, but there was something missing, Ed. There was something that felt incomplete. And what was incomplete was that I never finished what I started in Florida. All of those issues happened in Florida. So I wanted to sit for the Florida bar and I wanted to get licensed in Florida. Well, I applied for the Florida bar. Uh, they let me sit for the exam. I pass. And then I get a letter saying, congratulations, you have passed. However, because of your criminal history, we have to do some more vetting before we can allow you to swear in. Well, um, for about a year or so, they kept sending me these letters asking me for just things that I, I just, whatever, right? I'm just sending it to them, sending it to them. And then one day they sent me a letter that said, we need to get all of the notices to appear for every arrest and every traffic ticket you've ever had. And I wow. thought, you know, who in the world keeps a portfolio of every bad decision you've made, right? right. And, uh, so I was perplexed and I responded to that. I said, I'm perplexed that you would ask me for something that you know I cannot produce because even your departments don't archive notices to appear. So why don't we do this in person? And that's exactly what we did. We flew down there in what's called an investigative hearing, and Manny Aurora represented me, 
And it was three individuals that were lawyers that were on this panel and they questioned me with the executive director of the Florida Board of Bar Examiners sitting in on my hearing. And they asked every ugly question you can think of, Ed. They were like, what kind of parents do you have that would have let you get arrested 13 times before you were 19 years old? And, you know, I answered every question with good eye contact and never losing my composure because there's no holes in my story. This is the reality that I grew through, right? And I explained to them that my parents were the first phone call that I'm going to make when I get out of that room. And they were the last phone call I made before I walked in that room. They've been there the entire time. They didn't invent poverty. They didn't invent police discrimination. They didn't invent malicious prosecutions. They didn't invent any of this stuff. They tried to do the best they can. And they believed in me despite my, my bad decision-making for so long. So at some point they said, okay, we're done questioning. If you wanna make a, a closing statement or an argument, I'll go for it. And so Manny went first and Manny stands up and he says, um, you know, I've been practicing law for over 20 years. I started off in the Air Force. I was a JAG officer. I became a judge in the Air Force. Then I transitioned to the Special Victims Unit in Fulton County. Then I went into private practice with Ed Garland. Then I started my own private practice. And I've seen so many things, but I've never seen anything like this. And what is the point of our profession if we don't empower people like him, because he will be a change agent, he will help others just like him. And so if you can't give him a license to practice law, just take mine. And I thought, oh my God, you know, this man has never shown an emotion since I've known him. And for him to project in that way, it just, it put a lump in my throat, Ed. I was, I had to recollect myself before I could respond. And I remember saying, make me a voice for others. Help me stand up for those that can't for themselves. If you empower me, I promise you, I will make you proud. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to publish an autobiography that details my 13 arrests, what it took to rehabilitate, and how you climb the social rungs in America to realize the American dream. And every penny that I make, I will use it to start a nonprofit organization to create a curriculum to help educate people that are facing the same challenges I've overcome but I can't do it unless you let me do it. And I said, so please give me an oath of attorney. Well, 10 days later, I received that oath of attorney right there. And uh, I knew the only place I was gonna swear in was in the same courthouse that I was facing 15 years in prison in 1996. So I flew down there to Miami, um, super emotional. Obviously, I'm sure you can imagine I could barely even talk during that day. I just stayed quiet because I didn't want to kind of, you know, tighten up a little bit. And the judge calls my name. And she says, Mr. Winnature, we have an oath of attorney here. Um, <clears throat> you know, my mom, she was there. She squeezed my hand. I stood up and, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so I go before the judge and uh, I remember the judge's voice like turning into like Charlie Brown. It's like, wah, 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 wah. Because yeah. my whole life is flashing before my eyes. All of the pain, the despair, the poverty. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the crooked police, the, the, the Nicole's of the world, the, the Manny's of the world. And I really thought that that moment was going to give me peace, Ed, yep. but instead it gave me purpose. It, it showed me that God is the greatest engineer there is. He tailor fitted my experiences so that I could do the work I do today in restorative justice. He wanted me to go through poverty. He wanted me to experience the criminal justice system. He wanted me to see all these things so we can create a meaningful, impactful program that would change the system to create better experiences for everybody. People charged with crimes, victims of crimes, the taxpayers funding the whole system. 
So, so David, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you again. Sure. So uh, our time is is quickly speeding by, and it feels like we've only been together three minutes. <laughs> so, and thank God, a movie is being made about your life. So what I need to do before we end is for, I mean, obviously, the story winds up with your practicing law. You have a law firm. You're sitting in your office there in Atlanta right now. Please tell us now for the next five minutes um, how you got to the point of practicing law with all of these lessons, with all of these lessons filed deep in your soul, and now you're developing a nonprofit so that you can impart all of this to a wide variety of people. What is amazing to me is you are not serving primarily white folks in your nonprofit. They are people who have the same kind of injustice slash justice system record that you have. So mm -hmm. can you tell us that story, how you got to that? Sure. So um, it's my favorite thing that I do. I love practicing law, but restorative justice work, it's just so meaningful, right? Hey, stop, and, uh, stop. Restorative justice. Define the term, please, brother. I'm sorry. Sure. So restorative justice is so meaningful. And restorative justice, if you look at what it means, it means to restore people um, to create justice, right? And so instead of implementing these punitive measures that we believed for so long were the best deterrents for criminality, we have learned, right? That data has caught up and we've learned that you can't prosecute your way out of every single thing, right? Violent crimes, sure. But people who are struggling with substance abuse, mental health disorders, um, academic deficiencies, poverty, uh, all of these things should not be prosecuted because if you prosecute these things, it just creates a cycle, uh, a vicious cycle of high recidivism rates. And so restorative justice means providing people with educational resources and access to community components that allow them to self-actualize. So it's a creative way of handling a case when someone's charged with a crime, rather than putting them on the traditional prosecution track. What we have created, Ed, is a better experience for the person charged because we educate them and reintegrate them. We have created better experiences for victims of crimes because we look for them to consent for someone to be rehabilitated versus punished. And we've created great experiences for our taxpayers because we know that doing what we've been doing in the criminal justice system for so long, at this point, it's fiscally irresponsible, right? So we've learned how to use our funding a little bit better. To give you an idea of what we've done, we created a 12-month curriculum that provides social, civic, financial literacy with mentoring. And if they complete every requirement of our program that is 12 months long, at the end, they graduate, we dismiss their case, we restrict their record, and we seal their file. We refer them to higher education or to the workforce because justice-involved employment has become a tremendous popular thing to do now. I mean, the stats show one in three Americans have a criminal record. In Georgia specifically, out of 10.8 million 10.8 million Georgians, 4.2 million have a criminal record. So that's one third of our state has a criminal record. And I know the stigma of a criminal record and how that restricts people from becoming the best version of themselves. 
So our program has uh, matriculated 125 people since 2015. We've graduated 118 people and seven people have reoffended, which is less than 8% recidivism rate. And just to compare that to the state's number, which is 65%, I feel like we're doing things that have never been done before. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, just go over those stats. Those are breathtaking stats. Number one, where Georgia is in terms of all those stats, and then the stats of your organization, which is called RED. Correct. Um, yeah. So RED is, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, RED st stands for, you are going. So RED stands for Rehabilitation Enables Dreams, right? And it's amazing to me that my name as a gangster, for obvious reasons, transitioned to this thing, right? And I always say, uh, you know, I want to share this with you because I think it's important for your audience. Uh, you know, I was saved October 16, 2001. And anytime you open up the Bible and the word is in red, it's him speaking. Right? <laughs> so it, it's tied into that for me. And I, I just love it. so much meaning. My name, his word, and our impact all was red. Um, so and that's, the, what we call, that's what we call writing on the wall, handwriting on the wall. And yeah, all I get goosebumps thinking about it because like he had a plan the entire time. He knew exactly <laughs> what he was doing. Um, and it's amazing, you know. That's why I always I I'm I'm not one of those Christians that try to force it to people, but I, I when someone asks me, um, where do you draw your energy from? I will yeah. tell them the truth and I draw my energy from him, you know. Absolutely. I my whole life changed because of giving it to, to him. I never asked for materialistic stuff, I only asked for purpose, and he gave me one. Yeah. Um those stats that you were talking about. So Georgia leads the nation in the rate of correctional control. Correctional control means people incarcerated in jails, in prisons, or on probation. And Georgia is three times higher than the next state over. Um, that's why we're at the epicenter of this nationwide social justice problem. Uh, we have 4.2 million people with a criminal record in Georgia out of 10.8 million. So one third of our population is struggling to become the best version of themselves. And then the worst part about it is um, it costs about $90,000 per year per person to arrest, prosecute, incarcerate. And our program is costing less than $100,000 for 25 people. So we're doing it for a fraction of the cost. So the $1.2 billion that goes to the Department of Corrections, uh, historically, uh, they're not correcting a lot of stuff, right? Um, and $166 million of that money goes to the Department of Community Supervisions, which is probation. And now we have data that tells us that Probation is the root cause for these high recidivism rates. We got it all wrong. And now we're finally starting to wake up a little bit. Amazing, 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 amazing. David, all of this is just stunning. And we're going to have to wrap it up. But one of the great things is I've been to your website. And it describes so much of what you've described for us. And I hope that everybody who is watching us this morning. And the great thing about this is people can watch it on and on and on. It's archived. We'll go to your website. You want to tell us what the name of the website is? Yes. Yeah, so it's a funny spell, right? Because it's the word recidivism. So stoprecidivism.org. Stoprecidivism.org. If you Google the word recidivism alone, we'll pop up in the top three on the internet. But stoprecidivism.org, and you can learn about our curriculum, who our partners are, just to name a few, Google, uh, the Arthur Blank Foundation, the DeKalb County District Attorney's Office. We're partnering with big organizations because they're all starting to realize how important this kind of work is. So go to stoprecidivism.org, learn about our curriculum. If you have any questions, shoot us an email because 
our goal is to be in six counties by 2023, and we're trending to be in that position uh, because of the work that we've done for the last six years. Excellent. You know, I Googled red.com, and I think it led there. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. whatever, you, however you all get there, it is, it's, it's a tutorial in the criminal justice system in Georgia. And what, we, what we've learned is the criminal justice system is at the bottom of the ranking, as well as uh, poverty and uh, income immobility and all those things. We have lots of work to do. And the great news is we've got a partner like David Lee Windiger to help us and to lead us through all of this. So there are opportunities when you get to David's website to volunteer or to contribute or to learn or whatever the spirit leads you to do. But with that, David, I'm sad that I have to say goodbye for this uh, forum conversation. I'm sure that St. Luke's is gonna want to have some more conversations with you. Um, my, My tenure is about to expire here, but we have a wonderful new rector coming on and I'm sure she and all of St. Luke's is gonna uh, want to stay in touch with you. But for now, David, I wanna thank you. You have been so open uh, in sharing your life and also the secret sauce that helped Mm -hmm. you uh, turn that around. And I just wanna underscore whenever any of us has any modicum of a redemptive experience, the invitation is for us to share it with other people who do not have the privilege that we have. So, David, thank you very much. Any, any concluding comments you want to make, my brother? Yeah, thank you, Ed. First of all, I appreciate you uh, inviting me on to share my journey and our work with your audience because uh, I think that awareness is hugely important. And what I want to leave you with is this. Um, when you've got God wrong, you can't get life right. And for all those years that I was agnostic and angry because of the circumstances I was dealing with, I failed to realize that his plan was in the works. I get goosebumps saying it because my God, my whole life um, was created by him with a full purpose. And I didn't understand it in the beginning, but now I get it. And when I look back, it all makes perfect sense. So I always say, if you've got God wrong, you can't get life right. And it takes a little while to develop that kind of conviction. But I'm just so grateful that I gave my life to him. And um, I'm honored that I got a chance to chat with you. I hope it's not goodbye. I hope it's see you later. I hope everybody at St. Luke's considers us at Red a friend and a resource for the community because we're trying to create better community experiences for everybody. And I hope I get to meet you in person um, in the near future. David, I promise we'll make that work, okay? Okay. Thank you. And thank you all for watching this morning. Just stay tuned. We do this every Sunday. Redemption Empowerment Community. Uh, When you get big love right, when you get big love wrong, you can't have your life right. Uh, And uh, we know that about when you got God wrong, you can't get your life right. Thanks for that, David. That'll preach for a long time. Thank you all.